Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Forgotten is a production of iHeartMedia and Unusual Productions. Before we start, this podcast contains accounts which some listeners will find disturbing. But without them, the story can't be fully understood. Please take care while listening. Last time on Forgotten. I said, what are those round circle marks? Burn marks. He said, that's cattle prides, boss. So forget those confessions. If you see the file, the original file, there is not a single evidence that connects the bus drivers to the crime. I protected the file. When I said it to a judge, I quit. I resigned. They were probably the first lawyers to be so open about, uh, you know, what they understood about uh, the femicides in Juarez. And they started to mention that there were people getting away with murder. Getting away with murder, killing without consequences, impunity. It was 2001 and eight women's bodies had been discovered in a well-trafficked part of Juarez called the Cotton Field. Rather than pursuing a real investigation, authorities had apparently tortured two bus drivers into confessing. They claimed that the men abducted women while high on cocaine and marijuana. But as commercial bus drivers, they were routinely tested for drugs, and they'd never failed. The police also alleged that the bus drivers used a van to abduct the women. But there was no evidence to connect the dead women to the van. And in fact, the van didn't even work. This was the third time a mass grave of women had been discovered in Juarez and the third time that scapegoats had taken the fall. But who were the real killers and how did they keep getting away with it? Those are questions that continue to haunt Oscar Minez 
the city's former chief forensics officer. At the beginning, I thought it was a typical case of a serial killer. But uh, as more evidence came in, for me, at least it appeared there was a highly organized group acting on behalf of someone. So someone would abduct, someone would retain the victim for a while, and then someone would rape and kill, and probably an arguable dispose of the bodies. The thing is, the people who did this, they have power to remain uh, free, to not be investigated. So there's money and power behind these murders, I believe. So, Oscar, if you had been allowed to do your job to the end, do you think that your team would have come up with enough evidence and information that might have helped? Well, there were a lot of lines of investigation that you could have developed if you stuck to the case, but, I mean, they don't care. Poor women are disposable. So they decided to shut the case to present this image of uh, having an efficient police department. Protecting the image of the police department is a more charitable explanation for the scapegoating around the women's murders. A more chilling explanation is that somebody was protecting the identity of the true killers. But Oscar refused to participate in the cover-up. In fact, he tried to hamper the state's case by refusing to plant evidence that connected the bus drivers to the crimes. This kept alive the possibility that the true killers could finally be exposed, especially when some prominent lawyers picked up where Oscar left off, defending the bus drivers and publicly alleging a miscarriage of justice. I'm Oz Veloshin. And I'm Monica Ortiz Uribe. This is Forgotten. The Women of Juarez. Voy a crear un canto para poder existir Para mover la tierra a los hombres y sobrevivir Yo no nací sin causa Yo no nací sin fe Mi corazón pega fuerte Para gritar a los que no sienten así perseguir A la felicidad The discovery of the mass grave at the cotton field, followed by the scapegoating of the bus drivers, ignited a spark around the world. The protest movement in Juarez was already being led by mothers like Paula Flores and activists like Esther Chavez Cano. But this time it seemed like real change might be possible. It was in this context that some prominent lawyers decided to take on the bus drivers as clients. So these two bus drivers have given an improbable confession to eight murders. But, Monica, how do they end up being represented after that confession? So, eight bodies are discovered in the cotton field. Four days later, the police parade these two innocent bus drivers before the press, and a couple attorneys come out to be their defenders. Mario Escobedo Jr. had a law practice with his father, Mario Escobedo Sr., in downtown Juarez. Mario Jr. was 29 years old. He was born and raised in Juarez, and he took on the bus driver's case pro bono. And he told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram that he wanted the police to find the true killers because he had two young daughters himself, ages seven and nine. 
just like Diana, just like Oscar, just like the families, the mothers and the wives of the bus drivers, they wanted to expose the truth and put a dagger in the lies they believed were being told by the people who were supposed to protect them, the authorities. So they're stepping up. How did they go about defending the bus drivers? What was their case based on? Their case was largely based off of these allegations and the evidence of torture present on the bus drivers' bodies. After the bus drivers were taken to jail, the warden organized a press conference for these two suspects. And it was during that press conference that the bus drivers lifted up their shirts and showed the burn marks on their belly. And so these two attorneys were very vocal in the press, both foreign and local, about all these holes that they were punching in the police's investigation into the cotton fields. Diana Washington Valdez knew the Escobedos. We asked her what their work revealed about who was really behind the murders. They were defending people they felt had been scapegoated by the authorities. They were very efficient at their jobs. They were considered competent lawyers. And they also had a lot of experience in defending police officers who had been accused of uh, irregularities and wrongdoing. So they had a lot of connections with the police community in Juarez. Authorities may have felt like they could stonewall the mothers and intimidate journalists, but now they had opponents with real influence. This was the first instance in which someone with credibility, you know, a lawyer, is pointing out this investigation is irregular for these reasons. Images of the tortured bus drivers circulated, but the authorities maintained that they had not coerced the bus drivers, that the burn marks were from the drivers' own cigarettes. The lawyers had their first challenge. So all of these new kinds of side issues, like having to prove torture and then holding the police accountable for that torture, became thorns in the sides of the authorities. And that's when this whole story begins to take another turn into the darkness. It was the evening of February 5th, 2002, almost exactly three months after the bus drivers had been arrested. Mario Escobedo Jr. had left the law office he shared with his father and was driving in his pickup truck to meet a client when he noticed something strange. Mario became aware that he was being followed. Mario drove faster and faster, hoping to lose his tail, but he couldn't. So he did the only thing he could think of. He called his father on a cell phone and said, to help me, help me. And then... He crashed, crashed into a tree. All Mario Sr. had heard was the plea for help and a loud crash. So he feared the worst when he rushed to the scene and when he arrived, the police told him that his son had died in a car accident. Later, they admitted to shooting him but claimed a case of mistaken identity. Then they changed the story again and said Mario Jr. had been shooting at them, so they shot back. According to Diana, they even peppered a police car with bullet holes after the fact to make it look like there'd been a shootout. Well, you have to call it a murder because uh, what else can it be? 
according to witnesses, Mario Escobedo was driving. He was driving this truck. He crashes. The policeman jumps in the back of the pickup truck, breaks the window behind the driver's seat, and then shoots him in the head. That's murder. Can you tell us about the community response in Juarez to Mario's death and what the family did to call attention to it? Mario Escobedo's death is important for this reason. It created terror in the community because it's like a big warning to everybody. Back off, everybody. Back off. The families got scared for a while. Everybody got scared. But they didn't stay scared for long. There was an outcry. Yes. You know, Mario Escobedo's family knew or suspected that his murder was committed by a state police officer. But beyond that, the family suspected that this was a state-authorized, state-ordered execution. Okay, And so in order to drive that point home, the family took his casket and placed it in front of the Chihuahua State Attorney General's offices in Juarez. It's sort of like a public display of, I accuse you of having killed my son, this young man. The fact that a lawyer is murdered in such a public way, or shall we call it an execution, indicates that um, we're talking about something very big behind these murders. And that's frightening because we're dealing with levels of power that are beyond the regular people in the community. It's a very big thing. Within a year of Mario Escobedo Jr.'s assassination, a newspaper in Mexico City called La Jornada published an abstract of Diana's book, The Killing Field, Harvest of Women. It was then that the pitch of threats against Diana reached boiling point. My book was not written well. It was not uh, a literary effort. It was not finessed. I felt I had a very short time in which to get it out. And there were moments when I would pray, oh God, give me enough time, enough life to finish this, because this may be all I ever can do for the victims is uh, to document what has happened to them. And now I don't go over there. I can't go over there. The U.S. consulate's office warned me not to step over there. And Diana has avoided Juarez since 2003. When we come back, we hear about the chain of events set off by Mario Escobedo Jr.'s assassination and how it led to first-hand testimony about what was happening to the women. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. So there's this sense of escalation here. First, you have vulnerable women being murdered and the authorities refusing to really help in the investigations. Then you have scapegoats being pinned with the crimes tortured into confession. And then you have a lawyer defending one of the scapegoats who gets assassinated. Monica, you described this assassination and the uproar that followed as a turning point in the femicides. Up until this point, it had just been threats. But here we have someone who's pushing back against the official line, against the government investigation, who gets killed. Mario had recently announced that he was going to file criminal charges against the state police for kidnapping and torture of his client. And Mario Sr. calls his son's death a cowardly assassination at the hands of police. He and fellow attorneys take his son's casket, carry it over their shoulders, straight to the front door of the state attorney general's office in Juarez. And with this very dramatic gesture, they accuse the state of outright murder. Just the picture of this scene is enough to send shivers down your spine. 
that gesture is symbolic of the accumulated anger and frustration over a decade. It's not only the women who are being murdered, but it's the people who are coming to the women's defense who are being targeted. What about the father? What kind of risks do you think he was taking by leading this protest? The father was taking on tremendous risks. He's so angry. He's so lost in grief that he comes out publicly and tells the killers, hey, if you're going to go after anyone next, come after me. But don't do it at my home. Do it in my office. Leave the rest of my family out of this. A few years later, a local newspaper in Juarez uncovers that the state police commander who shot Mario Jr. was appointed to an anti-corruption unit at the federal level in Mexico City. Well, talk about impunity. And Mario Jr., how much did his actions end up helping the bus drivers? His actions did play a major role in the bus driver's eventual exoneration. And so, yeah, maybe Mario traded his life for the life of somebody else. He's become a very powerful symbol. He's allowed us to have this conversation and to expose the depths of the corruption behind his death and behind the investigation of these women's murders. Rather than silencing the truth, the assassination of Mario Escobedo Jr. in 2002 began to knock down a series of dominoes that would ultimately expose what was really happening to the women. After 2003, Diana Washington Valdez stayed away from Juarez. But that very year, another journalist plunged into the story at the deep end, Alfredo Corchado. And through a series of twists and turns, driven by one person's desire for revenge, Alfredo was introduced to a source with first-hand knowledge of the killings. I was able to interview him. But so this was the first time that I'm like, talking to someone face-to-face and he's giving me an account, uh, an eyewitness account. So before we hear more, Monica, who is Alfredo? So Alfredo Corchado is the correspondent for the Dallas Morning News, based primarily in Mexico City and along the U.S.-Mexico border. He also wrote a book called Midnight in Mexico. Today, Alfredo is a big-shot reporter, but he comes from very humble beginnings. Like Paula Flores, his family is from the Mexican state of Durango. Alfredo's family immigrated to the U.S. where he worked alongside his parents picking vegetables in the San Joaquin Valley of California. Then later, they moved to El Paso. He enrolls in the local community college where he takes up journalism. It was an incredible laboratory because you're a student journalist, but you feel like a foreign correspondent. You're literally crisscrossing the border. And he started reporting at this momentous time on the border where there was growing resistance to a long-standing one-party rule in Mexico. This was a time that you felt like the revolution was in Ciudad Juarez. This is where it was taken off. For 70 years, Mexico was ruled by a single political party. 
So it was very hard to enact change and reform. And so this is why people were out protesting in the 70s and in the 80s. People would protest wearing white, in silence, holding candles down the main streets of Juarez. Alfredo talks about his career being shaped by this coverage because he believed that Mexico's salvation hinged on the democratization of Mexico. You saw so much hope. You, you saw the possibility of change. It's interesting to think of Juarez as this place that's been a crucible of protests for generations. We've heard a lot about Paula Flores' protest and the mother's protest. Um, but long before that, there were these pro-democracy protests in Juarez in the 80s. But then they didn't come to fruition for a while. It wasn't until almost 20 years later that Vicente Fox became president. Yeah, there was this historic election finally in the year 2000, and it happens to coincide with the U.S. presidential election of George W. Bush. And these two presidents are supposed to begin a new era of unprecedented friendship and cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico. Presidente, we consider you a friend. Pues muchísimas gracias, amigo, el presidente de México. Su recepción tan cálida refleja la gran... Alfredo was sent to Washington, D.C., with the idea that he would follow and cover the relationship between these two presidents. Then September 11th happens, and all these dreams and promises come crashing down because the U.S. is no longer focused on Mexico. It's focused on fighting a war on terror. And it's the beginning of a new era of militarization of the border. So Alfredo, he sees his usefulness in Washington diminishing, and he's looking for a way to get back into Mexico. His editors eventually give him that opportunity. My editors came back finally saying, well, we'll send you back. But can you go through Ciudad Juarez? Can you maybe spend some time in El Paso? I kept thinking, yeah, I'm going to eat my mother's food for a while and go back home. Sure. The assignment was, can you find out who's killing the women of Juarez? Why were so many women either missing or killed or disappear? As a reporter, I mean, it was one of the most difficult stories because, I mean, everybody had their own agenda or their own theory or their own conspiracy. It was 2003. Hardrick Crawford was FBI special agent in charge of El Paso and had warned of an American serial killer. Oscar Minez was sounding the alarm about an organized group. And Diana had published stories about the Echo Computer School. In the midst of this, Alfredo was on his way back to the border in search of definitive answers. I mean, I just started asking people, you know, this or that. And I hooked up with the reporters in Juarez, people who also covered the marches many years before. Everybody kept telling me, talk to Esther Chavez. Esther Chavez was a known activist in Ciudad Juarez, human rights activist. This was a homecoming for Alfredo. He was coming back to El Paso and Juarez, and he was coming back to cover another protest movement. At his very center was Esther Chavez Cano. A few years previously, she'd helped Paula Flores break into that meeting with the attorney general to demand help finding Sagrario. And now, 
Alfredo was interviewing Esther. When I was doing the interview, it was kind of funny because I feel like all these questions I'm asking her are the same questions she gets asked every day. I mean, she had an answer for everything, bam, bam, bam. And I kept asking her, who's behind the women? And she kept telling me, look, I'm not an investigator. My job is really to sort of raise the profile and try to shame Mexico into doing something. But she finally said, if you really want to know the underbelly of Juarez, you need to talk to El Abogado del Diablo. I mean, that little phrase just kind of intrigued me. You know, the, the devil's lawyer, Dante Almaraz. When we come back, Alfredo tells us about the difficulty of securing an interview with the so-called devil's lawyer and the revelations that came when he finally did. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, 
the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's not clear why Esther Chavez Cano hesitated to introduce Alfredo to Dante Amaras, the so-called devil's lawyer. But it's possible that it was out of concern for his safety. Dante was a colleague and friend of the Escobedos and was involved in the defense of the bus drivers at the time Mario Jr. was assassinated. But Dante also had a reputation of being a lawyer for the Juarez underworld. I thought, okay. Dante, can maybe you know, with a name like Dante Almaraz, you know, maybe he does know what's going on. But I kept calling and calling. His daughter was always very polite. And she would say, look, my father's very busy, but he'll get back to you at some point. And that's how it began. I mean, just trying to read as much as I could, try to interview as many officials, authorities, you know, reporters who had covered this, Esther, victims, many mothers. and try to piece it together, hopefully waiting for Dante to call back. Others had warned you that Dante had a dubious reputation. As a reporter, that's often something you want to stay away from, but but yet you, you really wanted to interview him. I mean, when Esther Chavez told me that this was a guy I, I needed to talk to, I began by asking other colleagues, what do you know about Dante? And most of them would say, oh, stay away from him. He's bad. His information is bad. Uh, he's dirty. But there was one editor, and he would uh, actually walk from Juarez to El Paso. we meet right in downtown El Paso, because he felt more comfortable on the U.S. side. But he said, you should totally talk to Dante. I said, well, what about all these things? He says, that's why you should need to talk to Dante, because he's in the underworld. He knows everyone. The very reason why journalists would normally have reservations about someone like Dante made him the perfect source for this story. So Alfredo keeps calling. Finally, after three months of hounding, Dante called me back. And the devil's lawyer tells Alfredo, be in Ciudad Juarez tomorrow morning, 8 a.m. He'd give Alfredo the exact location 15 minutes before the meeting. Let's talk about Dante's backstory. One of the more intriguing parts is that he represented the other bus driver accused in the Cottonfield murders. He was actually friends with Mario Escobedo and his dad. Mario Escobedo Jr. was someone I knew. He was um, my sister-in-law's cousin. Mario Escobedo Sr. told Dante what had happened. And basically what had happened was 
the son is calling his father and says, hey, they're, they're coming after me. I think they want to kill me. He's begging the father, you know, call the governor or call someone, you know, intercede. But there was nothing Mario Escobedo Sr. could do to save his son. And this set Dante on the path for revenge. The reasons why Dante got involved is it was his friends, the Escobedos. And the Escobedos were really driven by this because they felt that these two men, Cerillo and La Foca, had been unjustly accused and they were forced into confession. And you have Dante, you know, who now, as he put it to me later, it wasn't about rule of law. It wasn't about democracy. This was about getting even. For Dante, defending the bus drivers was a way to honor his fallen friend. But it was also a way to avenge him because exposing the truth of the scapegoating would obviously be very uncomfortable to the people who killed Mario, the state police. And in fact, Dante received threats that he would meet the same fate as Mario. But he kept going anyway. He went to court and NPR reports that he showed the judge pictures of dried blood on the legs and bruises around the groin where the electrodes had been attached to the bus drivers. The judge looked at the photos and responded that the light in the courtroom was too dim. He couldn't see anything. So the state's case stood. In this moment, Dante realized that his only path to justice was outside the system. He had to expose the real killers himself. And in Alfredo, he saw a means to exact his revenge. But he was still going to make the journalists work for the information. It takes a while to get Dante to open up. It was like little by little by little. And every time I felt like I was about to leave and think, you know, maybe my colleagues are right. This is just puro borlote, you know, it's just, it's just going around and around in circles. And then you begin the, el, el, como el, el matador, ¿no? torreando uno al otro. The matador. Right. Trying to figure one on each other. Not, not revealing our secrets, not revealing our stories, but kind of trying to figure out, okay, what are you made of? What are you made of? That kind of stuff. And then Dante starts to tell Alfredo this strange story about a sicario, a hitman who had fallen foul of his superiors in the cartel. He and an, another group of people had been accused of robbing drugs from the cartel. And so the cartel gave chase and shot a lot of these guys because in the underworld, you don't rob from your superiors. And if you rob, you know, you get the ultimate, which is your death. Except this young man didn't die. He was found under this group of bodies, you know, a pile of bodies who survived the shootout with cartels, with people who were there to say, hey, you stole from us. The young man made it back to Juarez and managed to get in contact with Dante, who promised to protect him in return for information. Dante, very, very smart, decided to hide this guy in prison. Took him into prison under false charges, under a different name. He had very good friends at the Cerezo in Juarez. He would always leave me with a little tidbit. And one of them was, this guy's alive if you're interested. Not only was he alive, but he claimed to know exactly what was happening to the women. And Dante was ready to set up the interview. That's in our next episode. I'm Oz Voloshin. And I'm Monica Ortiz-Uribe. 
see you next time. Forgotten, The Women of Juarez is co-hosted by me, Monica Ortiz Uribe. And me, Oswald Oshin. Forgotten is executive produced by me and Mangesh Hatikila. Our producers are Julian Weller and Katrina Norvell. Sound editing by Julian Weller, Jacopo Penzo and Aaron Kaufman. Lucas Riley is our story editor. Caitlin Thompson is our consulting producer. Production support from Emily Marinoff and Aaron Kaufman. Our theme tune is Derecho de Nacimiento, as performed by Natalia Laforcade. Music by Leonardo Heblum and Jacobo Lieberman. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Special thanks to the reporting of Karen Brooks and Scott Carrier, which contributed to this episode. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.